Well, good evening. What is good news? Well, good news really depends on how it affects the person, doesn't how it affects us. If it's, uh, it's even bigger good news if it's unexpected, if we didn't think it was possible, if we've been striving for and not able to achieve something or do something, if it's been in the too hard basket yet remains important and we're not able to dismiss it out of our thinking, we're not able to find any help for doing this from any source, we're left to our own devices and we find they're severely lacking. This is where a solution, a way forward, stands out as good news. And we're going to look at that tonight because our relationship with God, for, the hum- for all human beings, with the God our Creator, we're in a, that relationship's been severely and critically damaged because it's a vital relationship. We're all going to face God at the end of our life and that's going to mean judgment. But even now, day-to-day living, if we're out of sync with our Creator, if we're not in line with Him, if we we don't walk with Him, then life is harder. It doesn't make sense. We're very much alone and struggle. And we need that understanding of our Creator. We need to have that relationship with Him. We need to walk with Him. And we're going to learn tonight how that relationship can be fixed up. We're going to learn some really good news, some unexpected news on how that gets fixed. And the book of Mark's going to explain this further. First of all, the book of Mark, it's not written, uh, it's, it's, it's written by Mark, but he's not, the, uh, he's not providing the details. It's actually Peter. The Apostle Peter is uh, saying what's happened. Mark is recording it for him. Mark's like a secretary. And it's John Mark. He wasn't one of the original 12. He wasn't one of the big-name disciples. He came along later on. He was there uh, during the end of Jesus' ministry. Uh, Particularly, we know that um, he comes from a wealthy family in um, Jerusalem. His mother, we think, was a widow. She had servants. She had a big upper room, so big that the Last Supper was held there. So big that after Jesus uh, died on the cross and the disciples were all hiding and there was quite a few of them by now, uh, they were in this locked up a room um, not knowing what's going to happen and Jesus rose from the dead, that was the room. And the uh, people who found the tomb empty ran back to this room because that's where it was. They knew where the the church was meeting. And so John Mark was a very well-known part of uh, the ministry. He also was a cousin of Barnabas, one of the leaders later on. He went on missionary journeys with Barnabas and uh, Paul. Paul in the end writes that uh, John Mark was like a son to him. He's also like that to Peter. So he's, he's very much mixing with the key disciples of that day, but he's writing here what Peter says. We believe it's written about uh, 64 to 67 AD from Rome, where Peter was in prison. And it's before the great persecution that comes with Emperor Nero in Rome and throughout the Roman Empire against Christians. It may have been written to prepare the readers for suffering and even martyrdom, which happened to many. The theme of the book starts straight away in verse 1. The beginning of the gospel, which means good news, about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Uh, This book is going to be about the life, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. We're going to meet Jesus very clearly as we go through this book. Look what he says. It's good news, gospel, good news about Jesus Christ. Jesus, that was the name that was given to Jesus at his birth. 
It was a name given by an angel or before his birth, given by an angel to Joseph, his stepfather. It said, when the baby's born, you're calling him Jesus. For you save his people from their sins. And that's the meaning of his name from the original Hebrew, Jehovah is salvation. So he comes, Jesus means saviour. It's a name divinely given to him by God. Jesus Christ. Christ is not his surname. Christ is a title. Christ in the Greek and and Hebrew means Messiah, same thing. It means anointed one. In the Bible, in the Old Testament particularly, they would anoint someone who was going to be king, who was going to rule over the people. They would also anoint a priest who was going to offer the sacrifices for the people before God. Jesus fulfills both those roles. He is God's king. We see him ruling. We'll see that unfolding in Mark as he controls everything by word. He's God's king. And he's also a priest because he's going to offer the one true perfect sacrifice, a once and all, once for all sacrifice of his own body on the cross as he takes the punishment for our sins. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is the claim, the very claim by which he was condemned to death by the Jewish Sanhedrin in Matthew chapter 26. And this sonship was not some sort of adoption of a mortal man into the Godhead or or something purely spiritual. You see, for an understanding and an interpretation of what sonship is, you have to look back to the virgin birth. Jesus uh, came into the world because Mary, who was... uh, pledged to marry to Joseph and, uh, and they hadn't been together and the Holy Spirit comes on Mary and she becomes pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And so the baby that's born is not an earthly baby of normal birth, it's a baby coming from God via natural birth into our world. And that's where Jesus is so distinct from any other person. He's born by the Holy Spirit, and we're going to find out more about him being the Son of God as we look at today's passage. It says, quotes from Isaiah, uh, it is written, the Isaiah the prophet, I'll send my messenger ahead of you, who'll prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. From the book of Isaiah, hundreds of years before, this day has been announced. And this day is going to be heralded by a messenger. A messenger is going to come. He'll prepare the way. He'll make the path straight. It's going to be good news of God's revelation. Much greater than what's happened in the past. Something new is about to occur. It's something that's fulfilling the Old Testament and taking it further. John the Baptist is God's messenger. He's Christ's forerunner. His status is going to be unrecognised by the Jewish officials. In the end, they'll put him to death. John's task is to make the road for God, and his preaching is that method. He calls for men to prepare themselves for a divine coming. Look at verse 4. And So John came baptising in the desert region, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The Jewish people didn't have a baptism. A Jewish people knew they had to be very careful about being ceremonially clean and so they practiced lots of washing themselves. If someone was going to be a a non-Jew, a Gentile, and wanted to become a Jew, uh, they would be baptised. 
But there's nothing mentioned in the Bible anywhere about the people of Israel, the Jews, Abraham's descendants being baptised for repentance. And John's baptism of repentance is calling upon people to change their heart and their purpose in life. We see in verse 5, they come confessing. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went to him confessing their sins. They were baptised by him in the Jordan River. They're confessing. They're saying we've done something wrong. We want to change. They're turning from being self-focused, living for themselves, ignoring God, to want to follow God, be like God, listen to God, obey God. And John's preaching reminds us of people like Hosea in the Old Testament who were calling upon, God was calling upon the people of Israel to repent, to change their ways. And the good thing about God and repenting is he always forgives those who repent. How important is that for us today, tonight? As we come before God, we're not perfect. As we keep coming before God, confessing that we've done the wrong thing and repenting, wanting not just sorry, but want to make change in our life, God forgives us over and over and over again. And look at the response to what John's doing. It says in verse 5, the whole Judean countryside, all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. I don't think it means literally that Jerusalem completely emptied, but it's saying most of the people, you know, a huge amount of people, from not just Jerusalem, the capital city, but also the whole countryside. I mean, he's down the Jordan River. He's, he's in a desert region, it says here. He's way away from civilization. It's like, you know, someone say in Sydney, but going right over the ranges to somewhere in the middle of nowhere, the back blocks, and doing this. It's a strange place to have a, well, it's almost a revival, isn't it? Masses of people. Now, if you were going to plant a church plant, I mean, Rowan and Sarah went to Auckland to plant a church plant because Auckland's a big city. You don't go out the middle of nowhere to start a church plant, do you? You don't go out the middle of nowhere to evangelise and call people. But God did here and the people went to that place because God was working in them. And so there's something going on. There's a, a big turn into God happening. Verse 6. Look at the character of John. Look what he's like. John wore clothing made of camel's hair. It wasn't a, a fashion thing. It was just a cheap way of living. A leather belt around his waist. He ate locusts and wild honey. Honey, you'd be right down about locusts. We know that he's in the desert region. He, he's really like the Old Testament prophets, like Elijah and others like that who were in desert region who were living very simply. And they were calling out to people to respond in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8. They uh, kept speaking about the end time and they were forward-looking preaching. But with John, there's more urgency. There's something really imminent about to happen. Something that's been lacking in the past. It's God going to come and do something. And there's a real urgency by what John is proclaiming. In verse 8, John knows... Someone's coming who's far greater than him will come any moment. He says, I baptise you with water, but he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. In fact, what's happening with John is really some religious thing. It's not Christian because they don't know Jesus. In fact, John's disciples, we read in Acts chapter 19, later on, quite a long time later, Paul would come across some of John's disciples. And they'd never heard of Jesus and they'd never heard of the Holy Spirit. 
They were baptized, but they weren't. They didn't know Jesus and they, the Spirit hadn't filled them. They weren't changed. And so what was happening was uh, it was a really a religious thing. It wasn't a bad religious thing. It was a good thing. People were turning to God, but it didn't have Jesus in there. And because it didn't have Jesus, well, how are you going to be saved? They needed something more. It raises the point of, well, what's going on with the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit didn't come on the followers of Jesus until after Jesus died on the cross, ascended up into heaven, and from heaven he said he was going to send the Holy Spirit, the Father would send the Spirit, and the Spirit then came at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And when the Spirit came then, it came upon the followers of Jesus. Up to that point, the Spirit hadn't been on the followers. It was working in and out, but not resting on them, not living in the followers of Jesus. At that point, the Spirit came down visibly, as we'll see in this passage does with Jesus, came down visibly and rested on the followers of Jesus and then spread to all the followers of Jesus that came after, even to you and me here tonight. And Jesus is the means by which the Holy Spirit comes to us. Look what happens then. It's puzzling because Jesus gets baptised. Remember, this is a baptism for the repentance of sins. At the time, verse 9, at the time Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptised by John in the Jordan. Why is Jesus baptised? Well, I'm going to suggest four things. First of all, to begin his mission to bring salvation to all people. The beginning of his mission. To support, to show support for John's ministry. To identify with our humanness and that sin is a serious problem and needs to be dealt with. And fourthly, example. To give us an example to follow. He fulfills everything God requires of his people. Who knows what a selfie is? I'll get my phone out and take a selfie, eh? Take it put up here. No, I won't do it. But selfie is not like taking a picture. You just do a picture like that. Selfie, you've got to actually change the screen around. You guys know it better than I do. And why, why do you take a selfie? If I take a photo, what's the difference between me taking a photo here and me taking a selfie? Suddenly I'm in the picture with you guys, aren't I? People not here can see where I am, what I'm doing, who's with me, what's going on with me, can't they? If I just take a picture of you, they can see what you're doing, but they can't see me. They don't know who actually took the photo, unless I say I did. So a selfie puts you in the picture. Well, you're going to have a look now at John's selfie, because they didn't have cameras. But they recorded what happened, and look what happens now. Look at this amazing thing they see. Jesus is baptised, verse 10. As Jesus was coming out of the water, it was full immersion baptism. He saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. I mean, the heavens torn open. There must have been some massive storm, some mighty rumbling, the, the tearing effect. It wouldn't have been a quiet thing. It would have been a, a ripping over the heavens, some massive lightning and thunder and pulls apart. Everyone goes, what the heck? And then they see the Spirit descending like a dove. Not that it was a bird flying down, but this is the Spirit coming and there's no way to describe it. It's just a, and someone pointed out to me that in the Greek, it's like a flickering, a flickering coming down like a dove just coming down to land on Jesus. And it doesn't end there. 
then the thing that happens is there's a voice that comes out of heaven. This is a voice that, that everyone heard. There, there could have been hundreds of people. There would have been thousands. We don't know how many people there. There was a lot of people anyway. We saw the old coming out from Jerusalem and the surrounding area were there. And this is a voice that every single person heard. This is a voice that was so powerful and so strong. Everyone just stopped what they're doing. And, What's that? It's the voice of God coming from the heavens. The voice of God would be such a deep, powerful voice that you just would not mistake it and you wouldn't miss it. And what's the voice say? You are my son, whom I love. With you I'm well pleased. Well pleased. Jesus, we think he's about 30 years of age. We're not completely sure, but he's about 30. And he's lived that perfect life. He's lived that life that you and I should live but can't live. And he's well pleased his heavenly father. He's obeyed him, submitted to him in everything he's done, in every attitude, in every inclination of who he is, of every word he's said, of every action he's done, of everything he has not said or has not done. He's pleased the father. He's fully obeyed. He's perfect. He's what we aren't. And we see something that's happening in this passage that makes this passage one of the great ones of the Bible. Because we see the Trinity. We see that God is three in one. And we see the three parts of God here. We see a God the Father. We see God the Father speaking from heaven. You are my son. And we see Jesus called the Son of God. And we see the Holy Spirit descending separately upon Jesus. And so we see the three parts of God, three persons yet one, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, work in perfect unity. They're regarded as one. Not one so they're blended and lose their personhood. They're three persons yet one in perfect unity. And that's the doctrine of the Trinity that we draw from this passage and others in the Bible. Let's all take another look at Jesus. It could be the first time, it could be the millionth time, but let's all take another look at Jesus as we look into Mark's Gospel. Jesus the Saviour. And as someone who's struggling with and being overcome by sin, to have a Saviour is really, really good news. So let's confess our sin. Let's confess that we're self-independent people. We want to do our own thing from God. Let's confess that and turn to God. And let's see that Jesus is the Christ. He's God's anointed king. And let's submit to his leadership as king. And he's God the son. Let's give him the place of honour wholeheartedly serving him, regarding him as our treasure, something so valuable to us. And let's go forward, recognising that he is our security and he's our significance of who we are in the world. He gives us meaning, he gives us life. He is our life. His coming is unexpected good news. We've gained more than we could ever dreamed of or imagined. And how exciting is this? And what a strength and what an encouragement as we go forward together in 2019 as followers of Jesus.